Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. And again, as we get going, welcome to each and every one. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. For those of you I haven't met personally, my name is Scott and I serve in this community as one of our pastors and we are super excited about everything that's happening here in Inglewood. There are new faces and new experiences that we share all the time as a community and then there's also new home groups and new connections forming probably every single time that we come together and we are so excited about that. Also earlier this week our development committee met and discussed the details of a new local partnership opening up for us here in Inglewood and we are so pumped about that opportunity. And with that said, I don't know if you noticed, but October is almost all gone. And in just a few weeks, we're going to begin our journey in Christian sacred time with the beginning of Advent. And if you look in your journal on page 16, you're going to find a little description there of this historical timekeeping practice that we engage here in our community. And it's just one of the many ways that we work to connect ourselves as a local grounded expression of the church to this broad and expansive effort that we make to tell the story of God's mercy and how we see it most clearly in Jesus. So if time seems to be flying by for you, in fact, with Christmas just less than two months away, eh, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you feel stuck where you are. Maybe time feels like it's standing still. You can't get out of where you are. Well, that's what Christian timekeeping is for. It invites us to be where we are in time, to cultivate an awareness of space and kindness towards those that we are sharing it with, but then it also calls us beyond where we are, to see our life as part of what God has done and is doing and has promised to do in the world. So thanks for joining us where you are and where we all happen to be this morning. We're so thankful that we get to share this journey together. Which brings us back to our conversation about Joseph today. And last week we came to a swing point in the narrative where the tension in Joseph's relationship with his brothers came to a head. Where their long-held resentment at how their father preferenced their younger brother and their anger over how this kid seemed to think that one day he was going to rule the world. These things boiled over for them. And for the record, as somebody who had one brother... And we fought a lot, and we said horrible things, and we beat on each other's bodies a ton. It's not hard for me to imagine. I mean, there's 11 guys in this family, and I'm sure there was plenty of sideways moments. And last week's story was especially rough, because in a moment there, Joseph is vulnerable, and his brothers strip him, and they throw him in a pit, and they contemplate some terrible options for how they're going to deal with him. We talked about how Joseph only ends up in that place because his father sent him there. And that was a reminder for us about how sometimes we end up in rough places and situations, not because we've made a mistake, but because someone else did. And that's an important realization for some of us, to extend kindness to some previous version of ourselves that went through something really difficult and it wasn't their fault. And it's important because that kind of kindness that we learn to accept is the same kindness that we extend to others then in their grief and pain and when we choose to forgive others when they hurt us. And last week, too, we met a couple of Joseph's brothers a little bit more directly and hinted at how these characters were going to come back to us in the story. But then we noted how ultimately they sold Joseph to some passing merchants. 
And then to cover themselves, they take Joseph's famous coat back to their father. They covered it in blood and they tried to trick him. And the text says that when Jacob saw this coat, he tore his clothes and he grieved for many days. So many days, in fact, that his whole family comes to him and they're trying to comfort him and he pushes them away. And there's real emotion in this text. Because we imagine that the divine purposes that Jacob had received earlier in the story in Genesis, they ring a little hollow as he looks at his son's torn clothing. And then we looked at how this chapter we were in, it ends with this summary line where we hear that, meanwhile, the merchants had arrived in Egypt and they'd sold Joseph to one of the king's officials. And on one hand, this could just be a connector that helps us know protagonist is because after all this is the story of Joseph that we're looking at but we talked about how if we're reading the story carefully and faithfully then it's more than just a function of the narrative because what that meanwhile represents is how like so many other stories in the scriptures there's very real human loss and pain and destruction that the characters come across and we see that we know that from our own experiences But the meanwhile also represents how in the middle of the dark moments and hopeless situations, there's another story that keeps on going. The story of God's persistent work to rescue and renew all. And and maybe this Joseph story comes to you in a particularly challenging season. Or at least at a time when it feels like maybe the details of your life aren't trending the way you'd like them to. Which is why it's so good to be reminded that to have faith isn't to pretend that things are great all the time or to put our, our head in the sand with everything going on in our world right now. No, if faith is anything, it's the simple affirmation that meanwhile, in the mix of all the hard stuff, there might be something good and kind about God's posture toward us. And that there is a story more true about us always unfolding, one in which divine love is always fighting toward us in our direction, wherever we find ourselves. And it's this kind of faith that we encourage each other to hold, even gently today, as we keep going in the story. And as we turn the page, let's take a moment and let's pray together and concentrate our attention for a moment. Join me now. Gracious God, You are creative and living force in the universe, in wide expanse, in ancient texts, and also, too, in the stories that we bring with us today. And we ask, would you guide us graciously into the words that we will pick up today? Words full of so much that we might have known and experienced in our journey And remind us again of how mercy has a way of seeping into the fabric of each moment, which is maybe what we need right now. And our hearts are open and our desires are known to you. And we're thankful that in this honest place we have no reason to be afraid because your love overcomes all of the reasons that we might use to disqualify ourselves. We ask be our source be our light. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So, as we work back into the story, some of you may have noticed 
that there is a lot of language about coats and clothes in this tale. Someone seems to always be putting something on or getting something ripped off. And before we get going, I think we're going to see that there is another instance or two in this story where this is going to be significant. But with this in mind, I wanted to start off by considering that Halloween is happening this week. And of course, Halloween is all about clothes and costumes. And for some of you in your homes, this might be a, as big a celebration as you're going to get in your house. I know our house is getting crazy. We're getting excited. Everybody's getting dressed up, which is why we did a little digging this week. For those of you who are in the market for a last-minute costume option, so here's our top three, okay? This first one... If all the news about cultural appropriation and costumes doesn't scare you off of this one, then maybe the serious dad pun will be the selling point for you. I mean, look at it. It's called a lad in a costume. Seriously, it's terrible. And then there's this one. You gotta love the literal take on this one. I mean, maybe this character was actually hungry. I think that my favorite part, though, is in the small print. I don't know if you can see it, because with this costume, you get a used shirt, a used jacket, and used pants, but you get a new bow and arrow. I'm not really sure where they're resourcing this from or where they're getting costume like this. But anyways, we're gonna go to the last one here, which is actually my favorite, Cyberman or Padre, which is easily reversible with some sunglasses or a strategically worn cross. And the point being here, I think, that being a pastor is pretty much the same as being a ninja. And who knew that dressing up as a pastor was an actual option at Halloween? But anyway, I'll let you think about that and we'll move on. Enough of that. Back to Joseph's colorful coat, if you don't mind, because today we're going to pick up this story from Genesis 39. And those of you who are listening super closely from week to week will note that we actually left off at the end of Genesis chapter 37. And the main reason for this is because there's a chapter 38 in between that we're not going to discuss at all. In fact, the reason for that is because it doesn't talk about Joseph. There's this little intermission in the story. It's actually a story about Joseph's older brother Judah and a woman named Tamar. And like lots of other stories in Genesis, it's full of intrigue and scandal So make sure you check that out. It's your reading assignment for the week if you have time to cover it on your own time. And that said, we're going to jump into Genesis 37, which begins by repeating what we learned late last week. That Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, who is an Egyptian, who is one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, he bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And before we go any further, I want to look back quickly at a detail of what happens just before this. Because last week, Bobby, who's one of our pastors and teaching voices here at Commons, she pointed something out to us. See, chapter 37 describes these Ishmaelites, these traders who purchase and transport Joseph, as coming from a place called Gilead, and their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh. And what was in these slave traders' suitcases might seem irrelevant until we realize that all of these things that are named here, they actually show up at other places in the Hebrew Bible as symbols of God's provision and presence. And things like spices and balm and uh, myrrh, these were all likely substances and compounds that were used to make medical and cleaning materials, which is an intriguing little detail especially when we find that there's a rabbinic interpretation of this story that sees these fragrant organic substances as a kind of providential gift that would have traveled with Joseph in this traumatic, dislocating episode that he was going through. These things were a sign of divine nearness and beauty right next to him. Maybe they're insignificant or maybe they're not as Joseph goes from one place of his story to another. Now, 
this idea of divine nearness ties in directly with where we begin today because as I already read to you, Joseph has arrived in Egypt and he's been purchased by a high-ranking official in the Egyptian ruling class and we learn that the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master and when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything that he owned. And this might seem like your classic hired at entry level advances to management story because that's exactly what it is. The story is clear that Joseph was bought and sold for the common price that we know slaves were traded for in this period. And as a slave, he had no rights He had no control of his body. He had no control of his future, which is why we're going to revisit that particular piece in a second. And yet we learn that he works his way up to this role that we see mentioned in other Egyptian texts. Joseph is likely put in charge of the entire estate and holdings, which included other slaves. But then we also learn something else, that the Lord was with Joseph, And that when his master saw that the Lord was with him in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his master's eyes. And this is a curious phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, because it's the first time that God is named in Joseph's story. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, how even in the tale of Joseph dreaming, God isn't named directly. And in fact, this chapter and story is the only place in Joseph's entire life where God is named by his distinctly Hebrew title, Yahweh. And the ancient author isn't doing this by accident, especially when we look at the entire phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, and how it repeats several times in our story today. Because this isn't a bright part of Joseph's story which we're going to see in a second. And as Joseph's life seems to stabilize on the brink of yet another setback, the ancient author makes this huge statement. By using this language that was previously used for Joseph's ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those who had carried God's promised redemption for all people, saying, listen, God is all over this story. Don't forget that. And where before we weren't sure if Joseph was just maybe making up dreams with divine claims. As the story continues in the next couple episodes, we're going to find ourselves maybe wondering just how closely God is following the action. Or if God's even involved at all. Which brings us back to that little phrase about the contents of the slave trader's bags. And then to the narrator's claim that the great creating and redemptive force in all things was with Joseph. Because I'm sure many of you have wondered just how connected God might be to your everyday experience. And still others may have questioned whether the divine is as close as some people make the divine out to be. And part of what the Joseph story teaches us is that there are so many ways that we come to trust this truth in our lives. Sometimes it might be in the blessing of joy and success in our work, in how we seem to always be making the right choices for a certain season, or maybe how others recognize our skills and gifts at certain times. But then there's also moments when everything falls apart and we feel apart from the safety and security that we have experienced at one point or another. And it's there 
that some simple beauty sometimes comes to us. And maybe in the kind and timely intervention of a loved one or a friend, or maybe an artist or an author we discover who names our experience and then charts a path forward for us, Or maybe it's just a mountain vista or a tree in fall color that reminds you how beauty can remove even the heaviest burden that you are carrying. Whatever the case, coming to trust God's nearness is a mystery that we all find ourselves in at some parts of our journey where we learn moment by moment to look where and how the divine is with us regardless of what's going on. Now, with that said, Joseph's rise to the top of this household is about to take a dramatic turn because we've already heard that God is blessing everything that he does and that his boss is loving having him around because things are going good, so much, in fact, that the text says that Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. Joseph in charge Potiphar did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. And literally, the phrasing in Hebrew here is something like, he put everything into Joseph's hand with one qualifier. And curiously, there's more than one biblical scholar, along with ancient Jewish commentators, that think that this is a reference to Potiphar not letting Joseph touch his food. Ah, That's not really what it is. It's actually a reference to his wife. In other words, just like our culture has euphemisms for sex, we're being told that Joseph had control over everything except access to Potiphar's wife. Which seems to be reinforced in the next few verses because the narrator at this point feels it's important that we know that Joseph was good-looking. As if he didn't have everything else going for him already. Great, now he has the body of a Greek god. And this is just one more occasion which we can learn to dislike this guy. To assume that people are deferring to him just because he's beautiful. But, but actually, it's a subtle callback to how his mother Rachel is named in the text as being a stunning woman. So Joseph got the good genes, apparently, and where his hard work and a business acumen got the, his boss's attention and favor, we learn that his physical appearance attracts the attention of his boss's wife, who, in keeping with the patriarchy of the text, we never learn her name, and we don't know her story. We just know that she's interested. So interested, in fact, that she demands that Joseph sleep with her, And this is the only place in all of the biblical narrative where a woman propositions a man so strongly. And listen, there's a few things going on here. One of them is with the language. And Robert Alter has written extensively about how the Hebrew here points at the ancient author's intent. How Potiphar's wife makes this demand, sleep with me, and she makes that demand in two Hebrew words. And then Joseph answers with this elaborate soliloquy where he basically says, I can't sleep with you because I'm trusted by your husband and if I do, it's going to hurt my master and because ultimately it will offend the divine. And Alter just points to how this is a common device in the Hebrew imagination, how pressure and temptation impose themselves on a character's journey and then the hero often responds by outlining the divine path. And to be honest, this kind of parallels Nahum Sarna's argument that Joseph's character is being investigated here. Because, Sarna contends, Joseph is in this really interesting space. Things have been going well. 
And he has secured people's trust to the point that he now finds himself in a position where he could have what he wants, where he could easily use power and control and license. And this is especially true when we read that this woman spoke to Joseph daily and repeatedly. And it's important for us to at least acknowledge that Joseph's self-restraint, if you can call it that, and this moral compass image that he seems to embody with his response, it's, this is some of what the ancient author wanted to get at with Joseph's story. How maybe perhaps we all find ourselves in a place like Joseph. Maybe, maybe we're not propositioned in this way, obviously, but we find ourselves with power or with influence or with a choice to make with a measure of freedom to do what we like. And it's in places like that, if we're honest, we are drawn to things we know run contrary to our truest selves. Things we know have consequences. Or things that we know have the potential to bring confusion or pain to us. And this might be in a debatable opportunity that we have professionally in our work or in our business maybe. Or maybe it comes in facing up to some of the patterns that we know we use with our children. Or actually it can come to us in any relationship that we might be using to cope with our own insecurity. And that might ring true for some of you. You might have noticed in your life, in all kinds of ways, how the things that distract you and derail you These things impose themselves on you and they demand your immediate response and they create pressure and they speak to you repeatedly and persistently and give you no reprieve. And in the face of whatever form those things take, Joseph's response might be helpful as you look for moral direction and as you try to make decisions, in part because his rationale is pretty simple. It's so simple that it can be applied, I think, to just about any circumstance we find ourselves in where maybe we might ask ourselves, is this going to compromise the way that others trust me? And if it's going to, then I shouldn't do it. And if this is going to hurt others, then it, certainly it can't be best And if this is going to work against the peace that I feel I have in my soul, then I don't want to have any part of it. And while asking those kinds of questions may not relieve all of the pressure you face, you might find that it puts you in line with the divine courage that's at work inside of you. Divine courage that's ultimately pulling you towards God's best in your immediate future. Okay. So the language points to this moral dilemma that the ancient author wants to highlight. But there's more happening here, some of which connects to our modern current culture in some really potent ways. Because the story continues and we learn that one day Joseph, he comes into work and it happened that nobody else was around. And the text says that this woman grabbed Joseph by his clothes and demanded again that he sleep with her. Which, and I want to be careful here, I think it's really important to make sure we don't read or hear this as mildly consensual or romantic in any way. This is a woman of power and privilege demanding her rights as the owner of her slave. And sexual rights are one of the longest standing practices of slavery since the ancient world. And the scene is dramatic. She grabs him and the verb here implies a measure of violence, so much so that Joseph's clothing is left in her hands. 
and he resists and runs off. And so she calls for help. And we see that she takes his clothes and she tells everyone that this foreigner, this good-looking Hebrew slave has tried to rape her. And when his master heard the story that his wife was telling, saying, this is how your slave treated me, Potiphar burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. There's another mention of how God was with Joseph, and that's going to show up for us again next week. But for now, let's look at the heart of this story and how it depicts a woman falsely accusing a man. And it doesn't matter how I frame it. This is a difficult subject to talk about in light of where we find ourselves as a culture. Because we are living in a time when women are rightfully and courageously speaking out against the practices of power that have wounded them, practices that have wrongfully kept them silent and constrained them in their stories. And where those stories have long been ignored, we are finally beginning to see them recognized and validated and justice is being served. Thank God. But there are still instances where women are not believed and where their claims go unnoticed. And with this, I'm sure it's possible that if we read this story uncritically, this story could be seen as a warning against the progress that we've seen with movements like Me Too. Where just like men, women are viewed as manipulative and malicious. And as a result, accusations against men should be heard and evaluated with a hint of suspicion until proof can be produced at least. And let me be clear. I'm not saying that women don't ever lie. No, I'm saying that if we read this story and we think this woman's deceit is the point, then we're missing something. Because if we look closely at Joseph's story so far, we see that he stumbled into a violent ambush through no fault of his own. And we see him sold like an object, not able to control his future. And here he is. He's every foreigner, he's every slave, and he's every young person with a vulnerable, beautiful body. Stuck at the intersection of the pressure to survive and the pressure to give those with power what they want and demand in exchange. The point of the story isn't lust or false accusation. It's about how the weak and the marginalized, regardless of gender or age, They're always abused by unchecked power. And when we look at it this way, then Joseph serves less as a moral hero, the kind of character that does the right thing under pressure. He's the good guy. But often the kind of character that we feel we could never measure up to. And instead, Joseph becomes the stand-in for any and every person victimized by power where bodies are objectified and whose wishes are ignored and who are often cast away when they don't cooperate. And where ultimately we start to see Joseph as those whose stories we cannot hear or we've chosen not to hear. Those who've been silenced in our corner of the world. And for each of this, this can be different. Maybe it's the stories of new immigrants or refugees or First Nations peoples, or the incarcerated, or the elderly, or our transgender friends. They, they could be strangers, or they could be your neighbors. 
And then, of course, maybe it's your story that's been kept quiet. And today, humbly, I stand and grieve for all the pain that's cost you. Because at some level, this story brings us all to this place. To a place where we acknowledge the ways that power crushes and it controls and it leaves so many of us without the means to grow. And if you've been pushed down by those kinds of forces and felt that no one could see you, then my humble prayer is that our little community could be a place where you are known and you are heard and you are kept safe, learning to trust God's goodness. And if Joseph's story has helped you catch sight of, even for just a moment today, those around you who are invisible or broken or in need, then my prayer is that our community will be a place where you are encouraged to act and to be engaged and to ultimately shape a life in tune with God's goodness that longs to make all hearts new. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, in these moments, a text like this feels almost too heavy to carry. And it comes to us, and we, we accept it, but we, we've tried to work with it. And we've tried to let it be what it is while also being critical. Because we know and understand that sometimes there's this distance between what the text is calling us to and where we are. And so we ask, would you come and would you teach us to trust that you are always and ever showing up in our story? And then like you are with Joseph in all of these deep, dark pits he finds himself in, you are with us. And we pray too that you would teach us that there are questions that we can ask ourselves in the face of challenge and the persistent pressure that we deal with all the time. The questions that we need to entertain and walk with. How might this betray others' trust? And how might I protect others? And how could I choose internal peace? And two, I pray that you would give us courage to see ourselves always and ever at the intersections of our lives where we're caught between the pressure to survive, but also the pressure to conform or compromise or surrender. Maybe that's us today. Would you give us comfort in knowing that when we look at the story of Jesus, how Jesus occupied those same intersections of power and humanity. And you give us hope because there in that place you suffer and grieve and you expose the injustice that wounds us all. We ask for your mercy and courage to live as we only can with you near to us. In the name of Christ, our hope, we pray. Amen.